Good morning. Um, it's great to see you. Everybody remember about their clocks. We're all here. If you'll bow your heads, I'd love to pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, that was a, a powerful, powerful song. And we're so thankful that uh, you didn't stay in the grave, but in fact, you rose again. And that meant everything for us. And we thank you that we were willing to do that. Lord, I was reminded as I drove here this morning of the beauty of your creation, and I thank you for that. I thank you for creating such a magnificent place, giving us minds that could appreciate it. And thank you for the love that you had for us, and then the ability that you've given us to love one another as you command us. Thank you for that. Thank you for all that you've done for us and do for us. Father, I'd like to pray for three churches today in our community, Grace Anglican, Emmanuel Lutheran, and Calvary Baptist. Father, there are brothers and sisters in all those congregations that we'll spend eternity with, and we thank you for them. We thank you for the, the greater body of believers in this community and state and nation and world. We just pray that you help us to be the men and women that you want us to be in a world that's very hostile to your name and your will at this moment. But help us to not get discouraged. As Pastor Chad uh, said last Sunday, help us to not be anxious, but to live as you desire us to live. And then, Lord, there are many people in the congregation that are um, doing very well and we thank you for that. And there are those that are struggling with, with the crud that's kind of been going around for a long time. And there are some serious illnesses going on, and I don't know of all, but I would just particularly like to lift up Jim Arzy and his family. Jim's still in Salt Lake City, and uh, just be there. Uh, strengthen his body, encourage him, uh, and, and Oh, Father, be with Carmen as well, and, and the family, the kids, and everybody. We just lift them up and pray that, that he's going to get better, that that's our desire. Father, now we come to a, a wonderful time in the service when we're allowed to give back a portion of what you give to us, because in fact, all that we are and all that we have comes from you, and we're grateful. So we pray that this offering will be used to to spread your gospel uh, in our community and the state and, and beyond to the missions that we support throughout the world. So, Father, thank you. It's in your son's precious name I pray. Amen. to make a person content. A, a first-time study was done last year by Harvard Business School, and they studied 4,000 millionaires in the United States of America, and they asked, rate your happiness on a scale of 1 to 10, and then if it's not a 10, then tell us how much money it would take in order to make you happy. So these 4,000 millionaires, they, they undertook this study, and very few came back and said that they were happy where they were. As a matter of fact, after having taken this study, 
and ranking their happiness on a scale of 1 to 10, <laughs> most said they were not happy. And 26% of those millionaires that took this test said that they needed 10 times more money in order to be happy. 24% said they needed five times more, followed by 23% that said they needed two times more. And only 13% of those respondents said that they were currently happy with where they were financially. And maybe the most surprising thing of all in this study was that this answer was consistent no matter how much money a person had. In other words, some of these people had about $100 million, and they still came back and said they needed much more if they were going to be happy. Um, the lead researcher, Michael Norton, in an interview with The Atlantic, he suggested that the problem for so many millionaires, he says, is comparison. So the question of happiness is not so much do I have enough, but do I have more than those who are around me? Norton concluded that if a family amasses a $50 million, uh, $50 million but moves into a neighborhood where everyone has more money, they still won't be happy. All the way up the spectrum of wealth, basically everyone says they need two or three times as much in order to be perfectly happy. Now when we start talking about this subject today of contentment, when we start talking about what's it going to take for you to feel like you're a contented person, one issue that comes up is wealth. Do I have enough? But then there's something else that comes up in the American experience when it comes to contentment. And I think Charles Swindoll hits it very well uh, whenever he says this. He says, face it, <clears throat> you and I are afraid that if we open the door of contentment, two uninvited guests will rush in, loss of prestige and laziness. We really believe that getting to the, getting to the top is worth any sacrifice <coughs> to be proud Americans. Contentment is something to be enjoyed between birth and kindergarten, <laughs> retirement and the rest home, or, and this will hurt, among those who have no ambition. So is this how we view contentment? And then I think for many of us, <clears throat> contentment often feels like it's just one thing away. If I just get that car, if I just get that house, if I just get that boyfriend, if I just get that girlfriend, if I just get that husband, if I just get that wife, if I just get that job, if I just get that promotion, if I just get to move there, if I just get to move here, if I just get to just one more thing, then I can say that I'm content. And yet I get to a passage like the one we're going to be looking at today in Philippians 4 where Paul says, I have found that in any circumstance, I am content. So how then do we find contentment? In a culture that offers so much, living in a country that offers so much, is it even possible? Can we find contentment? That's going to be our subject today. We'll be in Philippians chapter 4, and we'll be looking at Philippians chapter 4. 4 verses 10 through 20, 
And if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of, place, of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. So today we're going to look at this subject of contentment. And we're going to look through this passage. We're going to make observations both about Paul and observations about those things to which Paul is commending these Philippians. And in doing so, we're going to look at four ways to find contentment as we see them here in Philippians chapter 4. Four ways to find contentment here in Philippians chapter 4. We're actually going to be closing out the book of Philippians today, and we're going to be going through this last section. And we see here, starting in the very first verse, verse 10, Paul's making these closing remarks to the church in Philippi. And he concludes with a thank you, sort of. A thank you, sort of. And beginning there at verse 10, we see Paul expresses this extreme amount of joy over this financial assistance that the Philippians have given him. Remember, they sent a gift with a guy named Epaphroditus. So Paul's sitting in this prison. He's received this financial gift so his deeds can be met. And he says there, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now you can imagine how difficult it would be sitting in a jail cell wondering are, are people even aware that I'm here? Do they know what I've gone through? Or am I sitting here in total loneliness, forgotten by everybody else? So the, the Philippians made it clear to Paul that they'd not forgotten about him. And Paul expresses also that he understood that they would have shown their concern before if they'd only been given the opportunity. And then he says something very interesting in verse 11. He makes this remark, not that I'm speaking of being in need. Now, Paul's making it clear that he's in no way uh, complaining about his circumstances. He was not a complainer. He never begged people to help him. He just put the need out there and then give them the opportunity to fill it or not. And then in addition to this, he had learned a lesson that I believe um, we would all like to know. And he says there in the remainder of the verse, for I have learned in whatever situation 
that I am to be content. Wow. I mean, maybe if I'd gotten five more minutes of sleep this morning, right, I'd be content. But this word content is an interesting one. It literally means self-sufficient. And it was a word that was often used by a group called the Stoics. And maybe you're familiar with the word stoic. Usually it's used to describe someone who kind of doesn't show emotion. You know, uh, come whatever life may bring, a person who's stoic sort of stands stone-faced. You know, like nothing bothers them, uh, no matter what the circumstances of life may be. And this, these stoics go way back uh, to this time uh, in history where they adhered to this stoic philosophy. It was actually started by a guy, I believe his name was Zeno. And um, you may have, again, you may have heard someone called um, Stoic, but contentment was the highest ideal for a Stoic. For the Stoic, contentment mean, meant to be completely self-sufficient. The only thing I need to be happy is me. That was the cry of the Stoic. So contentment was part of the path to serenity for the Stoic. Uh, if you'd found serenity, that meant you'd found a way to live that you didn't have any need of any kind. Nothing had a hold on you. Again, you were completely self-sufficient. Your circumstances were inconsequential to your need. So Paul's using this language of the Stoics, only he's using it in a radically different way. Remember, for the Stoic, it was all about self-sufficiency. self was the core of contentment. Now, Paul's going to reveal a much different source of his contentment, but he's not going to say it just yet. He's going to keep unpacking these different situations. And he moves on to verse 12. He said, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul knew what it was like to not have shelter. He knew what it was like to be missing things like food and clothing, things that we wouldn't even dream of going without. Paul has gone without. And this is what I want you to pay close attention in the life of Paul. Even when he was missing these things, Paul never considered God to be far away from him. He knew that God was not distancing himself, even though he was going through these times of hardship. Paul knew that God wasn't punishing him, even going through these times of hardship. But, you know, that's exactly the temptation for you and I. That when we're going through difficult times, the temptation is to think, well, has God left me? Is he far from me? Is he punishing me for something I've done? And it's when time gets hard that that Christians have to resist this temptation to think that God is somehow absent. But rather for the Christian, we can always assume that God is present. So the first key to contentment here is by assuming God's presence. Assuming God's presence. Now that's not always easy to do. Paul was not shielded from difficulty, even though he was in the dead center of God's will. And you know what? Even when you and I, even when we are right there in the very center of God's will, doing what he's asked us to do, we're praying, we're doing, we're coming to church, 
we can still find ourselves in times of extreme difficulty. See, this is the experience of the Christian. No one said this was going to be an easy journey. And by the way, if you came here this morning and you're thinking that, has God somehow left me? Lord, where are you? Why aren't you with me? How come I can't feel your presence? You know, if you find yourself in that place, guess what? <clears throat> you're in extremely good company. You're not the first person that's been there. As a matter of fact, when you go through the pages of Scripture, lots of the heroes of the faith found themselves exactly in that spot. One of the, <clears throat> one of the men that God said, the man after my own heart, was David. And yet look at what David says in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? <clears throat> I groan in prayer, but help seems far away. My God, I cry out during the day, but you do not answer. And during the night, my prayers do not let up. So David feels as though he is hopelessly alone, serving the Lord, being faithful. God's either not listening or he doesn't care. But then you look at the next two verses, <clears throat> and it's as though David starts speaking to himself. And look at what he says in verses 3 and 4. You are holy. You sit as king receiving the praises of Israel. In you our ancestors trusted. They trusted in you, and you rescued them. So what's he doing here? He starts speaking truth that he knows about God. That God's not truly far away. That he can look back and see God's faithfulness. <clears throat> and I love this. Um, this is an ex excerpt from an article written by a woman named Kristen Wetherill in an article entitled, When God Feels Far Away. And she says this about these kinds of moments. She says, as we remember God's truth, our feelings are transformed. God's holy reign and faithful deliverance far transcend our fleeting emotions and distressing circumstances. So we choose to rehearse these truths when God seems far away, to praise him even when we cannot feel him. Boy, that's an important thing to realize. There are so many points in my own life when it felt like God was far away. Um, C.S. Lewis actually had a name for these kinds of moments in the Christian journey. And he calls them the trough moments, those times when God seems to be far away. And in his book, The Screwtape Letters, he describes one of these moments. Now, if you're not familiar with The Screwtape Letters, it's a series of letters that were written from a senior demon named Wormwood, who's writing to a junior demon named, I'm sorry, a senior demon named Screwtape, writing to a junior demon named Wormwood, on how to best tempt people, okay? It's a great book. If you haven't read it, you need to read a copy of the Screwtape Letters. So he's describing how do you go about um, tempting someone. And he says in that book also that it is in these moments that our faith actually has potential to grow its deepest, that God is doing some of his best work in our character in these trough moments. And in that book, Lewis tells of how Satan is advising uh, his demons, his minions, 
that at the beginning of a spiritual, at the beginning of the spiritual life, um, the believer may sense the closeness of God's presence, which he describes as a dangerous state that demons will have few opportunities and weapons to counter. That's at the beginning of the Christian life. Later, though, many opportunities against the enemy, that would be God, arise. So listen to how Lewis portrays the importance of these trough times in the believer's life. Again, this is a senior demon writing a letter to a junior demon about a Christian the junior demon is tempting in one of these trough times. He says this. <clears throat> it is during such trough periods, much more than during the peak periods, that it is growing into the creature that he, God, wants it to be, it being the person, the, the Christian the demon is tempting. Hence the prayers offered in the state of dryness are those that please him best. He, God, wants them to learn to walk and must therefore take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased even with their stumbles. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemies God's will, looks round a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. It's in those moments. It's in those moments that God may seem far away. So it, if you are in one of those trough times, if you're in one of those dry periods where it's like, God, where are you? Take heart. For whatever reason, God has chosen to withhold his presence in some way. And yet you're still choosing to be obedient. This is growing us up. This is us making us stronger believers and, and disciples of Jesus Christ. You know, it's the heroes of the faith in the Bible that are struggling. It's when they're having the hard times. It's when it's tough. But look how God is using them. God is using you right now. It may not feel like it. But he is, and his presence is there. So find contentment in the fact that God is with you, regardless of how you may feel. Assume his presence. And then we move on to verse 13. A verse you're probably very familiar with. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So what then do we mean by this? This is a verse that's actually been, it's been horribly uh, misinterpreted. Let's say that, uh, this, is, this would be a misinterpretation. Let's say that you're, you're stuck on the side of the road, right? And you go, you've got a flat tire, you go to your trunk, and you find that your jack is missing. Well, it just so happens that the pastor's driving by and, he looks and sees you stranded there on the side of the road. And you explain to me, well, Chad, my jack is missing. And I say, take heart. Don't worry. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'll simply pick up your car with one hand. I'll pull that tire off and I'll put the new one on. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens Well, see, that's not exactly what we're talking about here. Okay? That's a misinterpretation of this verse. Um, we have to keep verses in their context. So 
the, the, the things that Paul's talking about here, he's, he's referencing being in want, he's referencing being in plenty. And he's saying that whether he's in want or in wealth, that he can be content because Christ is the source of his contentment. So that's what we're talking about in this context. That he can be content because Christ is the one who's strengthening him. So be careful trying to lift up cars and things like that. Um, not what we're talking here. But it does give us our second source of contentment. Recognizing God is the source. God is the source of our contentment. And whether you're in want or in wealth, either of those things can have a harmful impact on you. Either place. <coughs> um, and either place you've got lessons to learn. I like the way Gordon Fee says this. He says, those in want learn patience and trust and suffering. And those in wealth learn humility and dependence in prospering. Now, let me be clear about something. Now, you may be here and you want something. I get that. But if you make annually $32,400 or more, you are in the top 1% of worldwide wages. Okay? So just keep that in mind when we're talking about being in want and being in wealth. There are people who are in poverty. For most of us, we're falling into this category of learning humility and dependence in prospering. That's where most of us find ourselves. We're not homeless and hungry. So most of us need this, what comes with wealth. So what do we do, what do we need to learn according to this quote? Well, humility, I think that goes for all of us. But also dependency in prospering. And that is not an easy thing to do. How do I be dependent on God during a time of prospering? Well, primarily through prayer. You know, prayer is the means by which we tell God, make our needs known to him. And that is how we show God that we are depending on him. So we have to be in prayer if we're going to be in prosperity and show God that we have a dependence on him. So I hope prayer is a big part of your life. I hope it's part of uh, your daily routine, that you're taking time out to do that. So there's actually some real dangers that come with wealth. I mean, there's a self-sufficiency. Haddon Robinson said it well. He said, for every verse in the Bible that tells us the benefits of wealth, there are ten that tell us the danger of wealth. So be mindful. Recognize that it's God that's the source of contentment. If we're dependent on our wealth to be content, then we're never going to have enough. We're always going to be wanting that next thing. We're always going to compare ourselves. Well, how come I don't have what they have? And Facebook is notorious for this. Well, what do they have? Well, how did they get that? Well, I want one. So recognize God as a source of contentment. Then we get to verses 14 and 15. And Paul shifts gears a bit. He turns his attention to the uniqueness of the church in Philippi. He says there in these verses, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. So even though Paul was content, no matter what uh, his circumstances may be, 
Uh, he was still grateful for this gift that the Philippians had given him. Um, since they had shared their means, they were also sharing in his troubles. This was a church in poverty, by the way. This was not a church of significant financial wealth. And they were doing something about that tough state that Paul was in. Not only that, but there was a time when they were the only church that was providing him any help. So God was meeting his needs through them. Then he says in verse 16, uh, even in Thessalonica, uh, you sent help for me in my needs once again. So twice they'd helped Paul in his needs. And then we get to verse 17. And he says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. So after having called attention to these two times that this church had helped him, they'd come to his aid. And he wants to make sure it doesn't sound like he's fishing for another gift. So he does that there. But then he says he seeks the fruit that increases to your credit. Well, well, what does that mean? This fruit increasing their credit. Literally, that means that there's an accrual of interest in your divine account. That someday you're going to be rewarded for what it was that you have done here. And now notice I said someday. There are pastors out there that are going to tell you, if you just give today... God's going to pay it back to you in this life in spades. And by the way, this pastor's make a lot of money to say that too. I've, I've been watching this. But you know what? The only thing I'm going to guarantee you, if you give today, is that you're going to have that much less money in your bank account tomorrow. Okay? <laughs> I'm not going to guarantee you health or wealth or prosperity. I don't see anywhere in the pages, you've got, we've got this godly man, Paul, sitting in a prison for crying out loud. What do I expect God to give me for, for giving back to him what's already his? Um, so there is an accrual, though, of divine interest, but it's in the life to come. It's rewards that come in heaven. Not anything we expect this side of our existence. So he speaks this reward they're going to, they're, they're going to receive someday, um, and it's helping them spiritually now. There is help now, physically helping Paul, spiritually helping them. But Paul does not seek the gift as much as he's seeking their spiritual progress, which is coming from their generosity. So this third way to find contentment is by being generous. Being generous. There's a fantastic book that was written by a guy named Josh Becker uh, called More is Less. In that book, he makes four observations about how generosity leads to contentment. And I think he's right on here. And one thing he says is that generous people have a healthy understanding of how much they already own. He says that as they give things away, they understand that they've got a lot that they can, that they can give. And not only that, but generous people have less desire for more. They actually find more pleasure in getting rid of it. They found fulfillment and meaning and value uh, outside of the possessions that they have. And they've learned to find joy in what they already possess, and they give away the rest. In other words, they found contentment outside of their stuff. And then third, generous people find meaning outside of their possessions. You know, it's the American way to wrap our self-worth up in what we have. 
and generous people are shedding off that sort of American way of doing things. Uh, if a person's value could ever be tallied on a balance sheet, generous people find their value in helping others and quickly realize that their bank statement says nothing about their value. It's their identity in Christ. That's what gives us our value. And then fourth, generous people have more fulfilling relationships. People enjoy being around generous people. And generous people find that they just have more to give. They're not looking for other people to give them something. They're more interested in giving things away. So be generous. Be generous. This is a means to contentment. That's what we see in this church in Philippi. We see generosity. And then we get to verse 18. And Paul says, I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So he's depicting their gifts to him as though they were this Old Testament sacrifice. After the sacrifice was made, it was burnt. And he's saying that this sacrifice, this gift that you've given, it's like, a, it's, like it's filling heaven with the aroma of this burnt scent, and it's filling the nostrils of God, and he's finding pleasure in it. It's acceptable. It's good. That's why we want our praise to be here on Sunday mornings. We want it to be pleasing to God. This is what it looks like from the perspective of God. So their gift to Paul has not only met his material needs, but it's also pleased God. And then Paul, knowing that he himself is never going to be able to pay them back for this gift that he's given them. Um, he states that God himself is going to reciprocate this gift. And we see it in verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So number four, be content in trusting in God's provision. Be content in trusting in God's provision. So Paul makes this incredible promise at the end. He said, my God is going to supply every need of yours. Now notice he doesn't say every want of yours. He's saying every need of yours. Because of this sweet-smelling sacrifice, he'll fill up every need of the Philippians. Now again, this church is in poverty. And Paul's saying he's going to supply the material needs that you have. In addition to this, this church is facing opposition and persecution. So he's going to supply them with steadfastness and joy and encouragement. In addition to that, they're a church that has a need to advance the faith and unity. So God's going to supply humility and grace to be able to put up with each other long enough to do that. And instead of anxiety, God's going to give them his peace. So all through Philippians, we see God supplying their every need. The needs they have to do the work that he's given them to do. Now again, this is one of those verses you've got to be very careful how you interpret it. Because every one of these Philippians, at some point, they got sick and died. It wasn't for God to supply them with every need in that he saved them from every sickness or saved them from death. He didn't do that. It wasn't for 
God to supply Paul's every need to let him out of prison and let him live. He didn't do that. But he was meeting every need that they have in order for his mission to continue. And it's the same for us. We have got to trust God's provision in order to do the work that he has given us here to do, First Baptist. And he's got work for us to do. And he will keep meeting our needs accordingly. So we trust God's provision. He knows what we need way more than we know what we need. So trust his provision. So then putting all those things together, we find contentment by assuming God's presence, recognizing God as the source, being generous, and then finally trusting in his provision. I want to close this morning with a, a picture of contentment. <clears throat> this is Anne and John. And they said I do to each other in 1932. They've weathered a lot of storms, and they still greet each other uh, with a sense of love and gratitude every day. That was at least until last year. John actually passed away at the age of 107. And during their years, uh, they lived through the Great Depression. They lived through World War II. They lived through the terror attacks of September 11th. Two powerful hurricanes that hit their area there in Connecticut. They have five children, 14 grandchildren, 16 great-grandchildren. Now, when she was a teenager, her dad had actually pledged her to another man, but she'd already been in love with John, so she ended up marrying John. They eloped to New York because they didn't have money to go any further. And they were married for 85 years before John passed away. They each offered some simple guidelines for building a lasting marriage, and John said, you get along with each other, you compromise. He said, you live within your means and be content. And he said, and you let your wife be the boss. <laughs> now, she chimed in there and said, now, we don't have bosses. But John and Anne, they're members of a church there in Connecticut. They acknowledge God as the source of all their blessings. And she said, can you feel God's right with you and blessing you? Or how can you not feel God's right with you and blessing you? Then John reemphasized the importance of living with contentment. He said, we just live with contentment. And we don't live beyond our means. They never looked for their money to bring them contentment. They trusted God as the only source of the contentment that they had. And we can too. So ultimately trust God. Trust God to be the source of your contentment. Please pray with me. God, we thank you. God, we thank you that you have given us everything that we need. God, we don't always understand that. But Lord, we trust you. We trust you to provide for us. We trust you to give us what we need when we need it. And Lord, I pray that we would be content. That you would be our unchanging source of that contentment. And not look to our circumstances. Not look to that one next thing. Not look at what our neighbor has, Lord, but what you've provided. And we love you. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.